How are you doing? It's May. And according to the weather, summer has arrived, smiling and luxuriously verdant. According to the academic calendar, we're at an in-between space. Our academic year has several of these interstitial times, and that's what I'm thinking about right now. Some of us teach Maymester, but not all. Many of us are pivoting from spring wrap-up to summer session preparation. How do you handle these connecting spaces between full sessions? Do you manage to make these days into what you always hope they'll be? Often when we're in the middle of a full semester, we think about the gap before the next semester with longing and planning. We will rest from teaching, we will plan, we will strategize, we will refresh our inspiration. We'll catch up on the millions of tasks we're ditching right now in order to manage our full plates from day to day. We're in one of those spaces right now. Do you have space? Is this opening already full? In our instructional ecology, how do we handle those openings between full sessions as a community? Does the tone and tenor of department life respond? Our social life? Small openings that have a lot of expectations placed on them are a regular season in our calendar. Can they ever live up to hopes? Welcome back to our ongoing exploration of the ecosystem of our teaching community at Midlands Technical College here in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm Claire Hull, your host. What do you teach? How do you teach it? How could we learn from each other? This is Instructional Ecology. Thinking about the connecting spaces of our year is a great launch for this episode's conversation. Andrea West in the English department thinks constantly about connection and conversation. In the very English department register, our conversation is meta. We talk about teaching students to see connections in their work and making connections between ourselves as a faculty. Andrea jumps right into our metaphor of community as an ecology. And as fellow members of the teaching community, I hope you'll listen to her hopes for better connection between us. Andrea talks a lot about synthesis as a goal in her classroom, adding many pieces together into a functioning whole. Perhaps what she and I talk about is moving beyond synthesis into gestalt, a place where elements add up to more than the sum of their parts. Join me for this visionary consideration of how she sees her own teaching at MTC and how she thinks about our community and its possible futures. My name is Andrea West. I'm in the English department in the School of English and Humanities. I've been teaching for 22 years, and I've taught at MTC 20 of those years. The courses I most commonly teach are English 101 and English 102. So School of English and Humanities combined English and all the English classes, so that is English 101, 102, 160, 165, and then all the 200 level courses. Humanities, history, speech, Spanish, um, uh, theater, music, arts. So it makes sense on a lot of levels, I think, to, to have us together. And because our departments overlap, often in general education terms, I would like to start with the meat 
of the English department, which is composition, um, which uh, I myself have taught composition for many years, and I know that it looms large in students' imaginations before they arrive. And I would love to hear your perspective, you know, from your particular um, uh, point of view. What are they thinking before they arrive? And what are the first steps you take when they come? Well, they'll come in the first day, and they'll have all sorts of expectations of what they think the class is going to be. They have all, and this is the thing with English, they've all had English before in some form. And so they think, oh, we're going to write a bunch of essays, we're going to read novels, we're going to analyze symbols and, you know, so they have those expectations. And so what I like to do on day one is subvert those expectations. And for example, telling them that I was not an English major. I was a German and French major. And, and so when they walk in and you always see them, they look at the syllabus and they have that, I'm here. And then I talk about, okay, well, why are you here? What, what is the college's goal for you being in this classroom? And so then they, you know, they're like, oh, well, I'm going to read. I'm going to write. I'm like, well, what are you going to read? What are you going to write? Okay. And I'll say, what's the last thing you read? And I do this all on day one. And they, you know, they're, they're like, oh, and they'll, they'll, you know, mention the great Gatsby. I'm like, that's not the last thing you read. You read a text message, some something on social media, um, a billboard driving on the way to, driving on the way to school. We read and we write and we research, and that's that's all around us. And no matter what you do, no matter what you major in, you know you're going to you're going to do that. So, I try to subvert those expectations that they may have, in a way that surprises them. Hopefully, even on day one, and think about why they're there. Why are you here? As besides the check on the uh, on the program plan. What is the importance of surprise in the classroom? I just think that students, uh, they're, you know, especially the class like English, they think that, okay, I've taken this class for 12 years or however many years. I, I'm not going to be surprised. It's just going to be a continuation of what I've done. And so when we when we discuss, um, you know, like I, I have a whole section on menus, reading menus, and that's something that students, you know, they, they read menus all the time. Well, why are we doing that? Why aren't we reading novels? Why aren't we, you know, and because we do so much in English 101 with rhetoric, it's a way for us to think about the rhetorical world around us. And, and again, everything that we do has to do with reading and writing. And, and the idea that, oh, students who grew up with computers don't read as much. Uh, I always argue they read more. If they're looking at their screen, they're looking at something and they're reading it. And, and so that's also part of the English is not what you think it is. So... What an interesting, I mean, we often think of education as building, you know, they, they mm -hmm. do a thing mm -hmm. and then they 
during the next thing, they go through high school and then college is an, an extension, a continuation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in fact, you're describing a higher education as subversion, <laughs> right? You know, as, as a violation of expectation. Again, I mean, like, you know, how is that? And maybe the way the lens for this would be the five paragraph essay. What is the five paragraph essay that students are bringing to college and what do you do with it? Students learn, and they always tell me in high school, every essay you write has five paragraphs. There is an introduction, there's a thesis statement that lists three topics, three body paragraphs, and a conclusion. And they think that everything that they write is going to have five paragraphs. Well, what do you mean? I've always written five paragraph essays in high school. Why are you telling me not to? And one of the things I tell them is, that's a form that really does not exist in the real world. You're going to go off, you're going to go to other classes where you have to write, you're going to go to your jobs, your careers, and I'm going to guarantee you're never going to write a five-paragraph essay. But you're going to write, and you're going to, again, you're going to write, you're going to read, you're going to do all these things that require composition. But the five-paragraph essay ignores one of the most important elements of rhetoric, and that is context. So... We come in with our five-paragraph essay with five to seven sentences per paragraph, which is sure to, to, to be correct. Um, and then you said that, you know, when you explode this, this, um, this belief, um, for some of them it's really liberating. Mm -hmm. But I mm -hmm. imagine for some of them it's anxiety-producing. Oh, it is. It is. But I, and I know that one of the things that you've tried to do is to resettle them and look at writing contextually. Yes. How have you, um, you might talk about in general about how English uses, teaches context in general. Uh, and then I'd like to wander over to how do we make this specific to what they're actually going to be doing professionally with writing? Context, I tell my students, is everything. It is audience-based. So someone writing to a lawyer, let's say, versus writing to a relative. That's, But your writing changes according to context. And I know our students are going to major in all different things, and they're going to have careers. Uh, I mentioned law because I know we have a paralegal program. Nursing is a great example. How everything has context. And that's part of, I tell students, you're going to learn a lot about rhetoric and that's often something that they don't know much about and they need to recognize the importance of context that is continuously changing now I start off by going over the reading process we'll read something from the textbook because textbooks are anthologies and anthologies often contain readings from all over the place things that were written, not originally for the textbook, but for a different rhetorical purpose. A magazine, a newspaper, a journal, a blog. Those all differ greatly in terms of context. So I like to start students off with reading and show how writers adjust their words, their sentences, their paragraphs even, for the audience. 
you're not going to read any five-paragraph essays. Even the student samples, none of them are five-paragraph essays. And then when we get to the professional writers, and so if a student reads an op-ed and says, well, this doesn't have a lot of research, no, it doesn't, because that's not the genre. That's another term. And so we teach students genres, different genres. Um, I'm teaching 160 this semester, and we just did resumes and application letters, which have structure. An application letter has an intro, a body, and a conclusion. It's not a five-paragraph essay. Resumes have to be carefully proofread and formatted in a way that's easily scannable. So these are, there are plenty of real-life examples, but I like to start the reading and then move to the writing. Well, uh, being in the context of MTC mm -hmm. um, for a while, what are some uh, writing examples and contexts based on the paths that you know they may be taking that you've adopted? Um, and how have you used those to, um, to teach, to better situate them in the ways, in, the forms in which writing can take and how you can begin to improve? As I said, I, I do a lot with menus, which might not seem very you know, transferable in terms of, but, but it is. So if we talk about a restaurant's menu, often we're saying, okay, we are dealing with a place that wants to stay in business. And the menu is that document where you decide, one, whether you're going to eat there or not, and two, what you're going to order. That's a lot of times that, you know, you're making a choice as a consumer, but that document was written. It's, it's actually, you know, an, a persuasive text and an informative text. But you have to think, okay, a restaurant is a business. How are they marketing? How are they, you know, so the, the accounting students can think about that. But I like to, you know, teach things that kind of both bring us all together, but also give us an opportunity to, you know, think about. And then putting that in writing as well to whatever they're doing to, to think about your audience. Well, I hear you talking directly to how can we help students in the context of your course and then also um, instruction at MTC as they go through other courses. Um, I'd like to know, I mean, the, the whole purpose of a community college is you know, we are embedded in the community. Yes, it's a very yes. quick flow in and out of uh -huh, our walls. Uh -huh. So yes. how do you see what you teach or how you teach flowing back into the community, hopefully to strengthen it? How, how, how do you see that? I, you know, I, I like you know, to think of my students as, they have their 14 weeks with me, and then they'll go on. And again, they, they may take other classes. They may move on to a four-year college or get their, their two-year degree. And they're going to be citizens, and they need to make, you know, informed decisions about life. And, you know, even, you know, one of the things I like to, when I teach research, is so many of us, you know, do research that requires us to, it's nothing to do with school. You're buying a car. How do you decide how to buy a car? What do you look at online? What do you, you know, you're going to, you know, vote for a particular political candidate. What are you looking for? And how can reading and writing and, you know, communication help with these decisions that you're going to make?
in your in your life not just the ones in your career not just some but but just every day you know decisions but we're all you know we're, we're all in this world and it it helps us to be more aware of what's going on in the world there's a the perception can sometimes be that English is one of the most uh, ivory tower um, disciplines, but at the same time, um, one thing that I know that the college and many places are talking about constantly is critical thinking. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And English, um, I know from from uh, talking to you that you really think that English is something that is distinctly suited to teaching critical thinking. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why would that be the case, and and how do you really try to um, uh, overtly bring in the the skill of critical thinking to your classes? Critical thinking, I mean, if you think about it, it's quite amorphous. It, it can refer to sometimes it becomes a little bit of a buzzword, you know. To you know, what does it mean really to be a good critical thinker? Um, we talk in the English department a lot about metacognition, which is another word students think, oh, that's a fancy academic ivory tower word. It's not really. It's thinking about thinking. And everything that we do in English is metacognitive. Uh, when you, and going back to the idea of context, everything that we do is contextual. So we're not just looking at the content of the text. We're thinking about the context of the text. And that really helps with so much of what we do in English. Um, How do we make our students better readers, better writers, better researchers? Because information literacy falls under the the English umbrella. And and, and when I tell students that, they're, they're often, again, part of that surprise. Research, really? And research again is is a big part of, you know, the internet, the Google generation, and our student body. And it's really important to think about thinking. And when you find a source online, not just take it at face value, but to think more about where that information is coming from. And the act of synthesis is, you know heavily dependent on context, bringing ideas together, I think is, is a really big thing. And, and going back to something we do, we don't, it's, it's, yes, it helps you in English. It'll help you in other classes, but this is also what you do in your day-to-day lives. Say a little bit more about day-to-day life. I mean, because at at this point we're, we're tipping into the purpose of, one purpose of higher education can be the education of an entire identity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Say a little bit about how, how you see that, the work that you do in the college, and, and how, again, that identity works into the community. And it's actually a hard question to answer because, again, we have them for the 14 weeks and we see their school work. Um, but I, you know, I do love running into former students who tell me how their class not only helped them with the rest of their studies, but that they remember something I, you know, I brought up. uh, I had a student once who sent me an email. Uh, We did one semester. Starbucks started this new promotion with this coffee, and they had these what they called taster cards, and they were these these little cards that gave you the, you know, the flavor notes, kind of like a wine, you know, 
And, and so we did a whole rhetorical analysis class on these cards. And, you know, and, and we, we discussed why Starbucks as a company would do that, what it meant for the consumer. And, and I'm back to the idea of, you know, students go out into the world and in so many ways they will be consumers, not just, you know, dollars and cents, but consumers of information. And how does that help them, you know, make better decisions, you know, and, you know, and I'm sorry if this sounds cliched, but improve their lives. How does that make them more aware of their identity as, you know, someone who's making a decision about some, something simple as buying coffee? <laughs> These little things, I think, say a lot about us as human beings. What did they discover? So here we are with Starbucks, you know, this massive... Uh, now, quite exactly. What what did they learn from the tasting cards? Audience, and it's another way. I when I teach rhetoric because they think of a lot of the terms that we use in English 101: logos, ethos, pathos, kairos. They think of those as fancy academic ivory tower types of words. I'm like, they're not. You walk into a Starbucks. You, you know, or a restaurant or, you know, any place where you need to make a decision, you are part of, you know, an audience. So November is a time where we often, you know, will think about these choices that we make and what they mean and what they mean for us as individuals, what they mean for the community. So we think a lot about this idea of community. So how do you see, you know, Midlands Tech has so many different teaching community. We have so many different disciplines that we teach throughout here. Mm-hmm. How do you perceive the English department as part of our, as, as part of the college in general? I mean, I like to think of it as no matter what the student is there at Mid- or here at Midlands Tech for, they're going to take some sort of English. Whether it's 101, 102, 160, 165. Maybe they even took, you know, 101 and 102 in high school and they're taking a 200 level class. They're going to take English. English will be part of their time at Midlands Tech. So we have, you know, students who will transfer to four year universities. We have students who are, you know, in the career programs. And everyone in between, and you know, it's it's a gateway course for so many of our students, and it, I think it's also important to. A long time ago, when I first started teaching at Midlands Tech, I had a colleague who told me that we're teaching them writing and reading and research, but we're also teaching them how to be college students because. It's often in their first year that they have to take 101, 160, 102. And they're often learning how to be college students and everything that that entails, the time outside of the classroom and the study skills and the, you know, the how to manage everything in your life plus school. And just how to act in a classroom, what to do, what not to do. And so I think that's why the English department and the other general education courses are so important. We see students who will go on to much more specialized programs. 
but we have them, right? And we have an opportunity to, and I think that's also good for peers, right? You're in a classroom, English. We have about 20 students. Uh, and, you know, they're all together. Well, um, pulling down from uh, the department in terms of the students you serve, I'm curious about the ecosystem of instruction that you're part of here. Um, as an instructor, um, how do you see yourself connected to other instructors in your department, but also outside of that? What What is the sort of experience that you're having in terms of that? I think that's always something we could work on a little bit more, is that idea of writing across the curriculum. I love to hear from my students when they have writing assignments in classes that are not English. I just had a talk with one of my students about a history assignment. And I looked at his assignment sheet and I got excited because, and I wish we had more of those discussions to learn what other departments do and how we can better serve those departments. So if they go to a social science class and they have to, you know, write a literature review in APA format, or if they have to go to history and read a book, a printed book usually, and write a book review. It shows how we are connected. And I think we need to make those connections more explicit between departments and what we do and what they do and how we can better serve them, how can we can better help them. And this is just a thought experiment. What would that look like oh. to you? Like, if you could imagine, I mean, like, are we getting to, like, this sort of, like, you know, Plato's agora, where we all just sort of, you know, meet and have enlightened discourse? Does it mean, what, Zooms? Does it mean some exchange of, of content? What, what could it be for you? Maybe, like, a faculty learning community? <laughs> uh, or, you know, as, um, uh, yeah, maybe Zoom, maybe, I, I don't, I don't know. I would, you know, love to explore that. That might be something in my future um, you know, uh, research for the college. You know, how can we get to better, you know, and even the sciences, lab reports. And, and we, you know, I know we teach rhetorical analysis and which, as I said earlier, I try to make my teaching as, you know, transferable as possible, but it's still English. It's still, you know, just the 14 weeks in my class. What do other departments do as far as writing and reading and research? And how can we better help them? So if you were better connected, what would that look like, do you think? What, what could that bring to the teaching community? Uh, I think it could be, you know, just a symbiotic, to use a biology term, that, you know, we have a better idea of what other departments do. And other departments, which... I will say, tend to think of English as ivory tower, <laughs> doing these things that, you know, that uh, our students often, often think of. So I think it's, you know, it would be beneficial to other departments and to, to us as well to have those. I think those conversations are, are, are very important, especially, you know, with guided pathways. So we have guided pathways. We have these courses in the program plan. How do they connect and how do they, you know, how can we better help? I know there's something that you use in your class called Burke's Parlor. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that this is a tool that could be 
easily transport. It's very portable. Mm -hmm. Could you describe Burke's Parlor, how you use it, and then how you might, other people might be able to use it in totally different disciplines? Oh, yeah, I love Burke's Parlor. It's a theory of Kenneth Burke, who was a rhetorician, and it's a metaphor. And I tell my students this, it's in the first chapter of their book, their textbook, and you walk into a room and there's an ongoing conversation. And you don't quite understand what the conversation's about. And no one really has the time to stop and retell everything that has come before you. So you listen, you ask questions, you think, okay? And then you're ready to put in your or, that's quoting Burke there. And then you leave the room and the conversation is still ongoing. I... I love that metaphor. I think it works like, for example, in the first unit of my class, there is an article in their textbook about Monsanto. And I will often ask my students, what do you think about Monsanto? Most of them said, I've never heard of it. Ah, so you are entering the Burke's parlor of Monsanto. And once they read the article and listen to other voices in the conversation and, you know, really begin to understand the discourse, then they begin to better understand, you know, what, what, so, and that's what, you know, we do that. Those of us who have advanced degrees, we had to, you know, enter Burke's parlor. You have to listen. You have to ask questions. And it's not an instantaneous process. It's something that often you need to allot the time to better understand that conversation. And yeah, you know, I tell students all the time, it's okay to say I don't know. It's okay not to have the right answers all the time because we are constantly learning. And I think that's really important for our students to understand that they're going to be entering a lot of conversations a text they may read in another class where, you know, they may not be part of the audience. I, that's another way I, I teach Burke's Parlor in my class, but I think it's highly transferable to say you're going to read something and you're going to be like, I have no idea what this means. So how do you better understand it? That's the process. Burke's Parlor is, is a kind of metacognition. It makes visible a, a whole set of conversations and debates that are ongoing and makes visible and deliberate a student entering into those things. Mm -hmm. So as you, you know, again, sort of thought experiment as you play around, um, how would you recommend that other, uh, that if you're talking to a community instructor saying, hey, give this a try, how, how would you suggest they go about this? When, like what, what kind of moment is it useful and how would they deploy it? I think that may be applicable to other departments, even, you know, the start of a unit. And I think it'd be interesting to see throughout the unit how to make that process more visible. How to, what questions to ask. That's one thing students often struggle and they don't ask the questions of their teachers, of their peers that, you know, are most productive. How do you make the conversation, you know, the literal conversation often more productive to better understand 
to have that grasp on the material. So I think it's, you know, you have to kind of sell it as a metaphor. Students will often be like, I don't know what a parlor is. I'm like, it's, I know, I do have, <laughs> I was at a museum in Toronto and I took pictures of a parlor because I tell my students, I'm always thinking about you. <laughs> so I have this, this is, it's like, it's a meeting room. It's a gathering place. And we in the internet world have so many gathering places. Just your basic, uh, I sometimes use Reddit as an example, which is a series of all sorts of mini Burke's parlors. <laughs> so all these spaces that we go online and there's an ongoing conversation and we're, we may not be part of the discourse community, to use a linguistic term. We don't know the language. We don't know the jargon. We don't know, you know what to say. So we have to take a step back and listen to better understand. I know, uh, again, in English, there are so many activities that are, you know, that, that uh, I know that you've generated over the years mm -hmm. as needs have arisen and mm -hmm. you've made changes. Um, I'd love to know if there's an activity that you particularly like and that you would like to sort of send out and offer to other instructors that they, you think that you use it one particular way, which I'd like to hear about, and then how you think it's adaptable. In the past couple years, I have started teaching something called lateral reading. And what lateral reading is, is how to think critically about research more specifically. Not just finding information online, but thinking about where that information comes from. It's often brought up in terms of misinformation, which is great. But I often think of it as handy in terms of teaching students just about general research. So they'll research a topic, pick any topic, and they get the Google search, or heck, they could be on the databases. They get a database list, Nexus Uni. Fine, it sources all about a certain topic, a certain subject matter. But where is that information coming from? So what lateral reading does, and the lateral part of it comes from, students often read vertically. They read top-down, right? Lateral reading requires them to open up tabs to find out information about the source. It, it is rhetoric. I mean, it's really what we do in rhetoric. If, like, I have students who will use something from the Daily Mail, it comes up, for whatever reason, comes up on a lot of Google searches. Okay, well, what is the Daily Mail? Now, part of this is website evaluation, and that's very important. But a lot of it's analysis. Before you make that evaluation, can you tell me about the source? And then the Daily Mail is a newspaper. It's out of England. It's a tabloid. And those distinctions are so important to our students. And going back to the idea, no matter what the class they're in, what class they're in, they're going to research. And a lot of them have grown up with the computer, where you know the distinction between a newspaper and a magazine is much more difficult for them, because everything is in bits and bytes, ones and zeros, binary code. Everything's a website. We used to joke with students that everything's a novel, right? Now it's everything's a website. So what's the Daily Mail? It's a website. 
No, everything's a website. What else can you tell me about this site before you put them in the paper that you're, <laughs> that you're about to write? So lateral reading is something that I love teaching students. And when I've, you know, done a little, you know, whether it's, you know, course evaluations or informal, what did you learn this semester? They always, you know, come back and say, I really enjoyed the discussion of lateral reading because it's something I took for granted. You, you have information online. You have this Google list, long list of sources. But how do those sources differ? Not by content as much as context. Because the Daily Mail is nothing like the CBC, but they may be side by side on that Google list. And it's also a way to help avoid misinformation falling into, you know, the, because uh, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's a danger when you research online these days. As I hear you talk, I can hear uh, the semesters of experience, you know, as, as we discover um, through teaching mm -hmm. what students need over time, what they typically will need in certain moments, and then uh, there might be some shift. But I, and, and so I know that, you know, you're not new to teaching, but nor, you know, are you at the end of a career. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about where are you in your teaching? What, at this moment, and, and I'm aware as I ask that we're in year two of a, of a pandemic, <laughs> that may feature into yes. what you want to say. Yeah, um, when I was young in my teaching career, I wanted to teach everything. And I was like, yeah, and this is when we offered ESL classes here at Midlands Tech. So, you know, I wanted to teach all of those and I wanted to teach all the 200 level classes and I wanted to get that experience. And that was so, so helpful in, you know, the, the arc of my career because I've learned what I am most comfortable with. And part of it is the pandemic. I'm comfortable teaching 101 and 102. I'm teaching 160 for the first time, so I'm still even though I have all these years of experience, I'm still learning. I think that's so important that we never stop learning as instructors. We can be too comfortable, but I, I and, and sometimes I wonder, okay, maybe I should branch out a little more. Now, I also, one of the things I've done in the past couple years is I helped to get Linguistics 101 in the state catalog of approved courses which is not just English. I, you know, linguistics is its own prefix. So Jan, Jake, and I had to do all this paperwork. That was very important for me at this part of my career. I had the time, I had the time to do that. We were instituting guided pathways, and that was very important to me because I am a linguist. And people who teach English come from all sorts of different backgrounds. My degrees in linguistics, and so... It's one of those things that I wanted to do at this point in my career, and it's there. It's now in the, the state catalog of courses, and I hope we can offer it, knock on wood, <laughs> and I would love to, you know, teach that because that's, that's my passion in life. Language is my passion. So it's both, yeah, I teach mostly 101 and 102 because I'm comfortable with that, but I'm also learning, and developing a new course and teaching a course that's new to me because I think that's being static as a teacher I think is the worst thing you have to be dynamic in what you do but it's also important to you know teach what you know 
to a, a version of a, a saying and and you know because I I've taught 101 my whole career and I love it and it but it's 101 when I first started teaching years ago is not the same 101 that I teach now no matter what I do I always want to teach and that's something that I you know I'm at the point in the career when I you know I have thought about administration, maybe down the road. Now, and COVID has, you know, just, I, I just want to do something I'm very comfortable with right now. I, I love presenting at conferences. That's also something that I want to keep doing. And I love, you know, talking to my fellow faculty members. That's something that I think is so important, and I don't, don't think we do it enough. Even though we've all had our fill of Zoom meetings over the past two years, but I, you know, I would love for us to, you know, have more of those connections. And I, I think that's, you know, important for me in my arc of my career. But also, you know, to how can I help my students? That's always my goal. But how can I help my colleagues as well? That's, that's also, I, I'm always, because I have these years of experience, I love to impart my knowledge to my um, to my uh, fellow faculty. So, you are ready to offer. What would you like to hear from your fellow faculty members? What What would you like to hear from them? I would love to hear how other faculty, outside of English, because I'm I'm fairly familiar with what we do in English. I would love to hear other faculty's thoughts on. One, how the English department can better help them. And what they teach, what they, you know, require in terms of reading. Because when we tell our students, you're going to go to other classes and you're going to read and write and research, I'd like to have more specifics on what they do. And the types of readings that are required. Now, I know from, again, often it's, I hear from students. I don't hear from other faculty Students will tell me there's a criminal justice course that requires a 20-page paper. Every semester I hear that. And so that's a way for me to talk about how the five-paragraph essay is not really going to, uh, to be your friend there. But I would love to hear about how we can help other faculty because there are all sorts of different genres and different audiences for whom those students are writing. And like in English, we do MLA, some APA in the technical writing courses. But how can we better help with documentation? And so I would like to hear from other faculty what they teach and how we can better help them, how we can better help them and how we can better help their students be successful. I'll give another example, medical terminology is a course that a lot of our health science students have to take. It's a tough course. I'm a linguist, and a lot of what those students learn has to do with learning about language. That's an, You talked about my arc of my career. That's another thing I would love to do in the future, is help medical terminology students study for their exams using linguistics. I know that's, you know, but and it doesn't seem like an obvious connection, medical, health science, linguistics, but there is a connection to be made there. 
and I, I would love to give my expertise and I'd love to hear from the medical terminology faculty who are often like, well, we don't have time to teach anything new. I get that. I totally understand that. But how can we, you know, make what we teach, you know, if you're teaching roots and the importance of, you know, Greek roots and Latin roots, that's linguistics. That's, that's my expertise. I might not know much about medical science, but how could we work together? I hear one of the things you're saying is you would like to know what's happening, exactly what's happening. Yes, yes. Um, you know, you're aware of course titles like mm -hmm. medical terminology, but what, what's happening? Yeah. What is it? What are they doing? What is the syllabus? What is the content like? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's something I've heard from a lot of instructors. Uh, we are alone in our classrooms, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we're surrounded by other classrooms. Yes, yes. Um, just a small question: How could we be better connected? Would you? What would you like? What would you like to see? I, you know, that's a that's a great question, and I was just thinking about. Yes, we are, you know, I'm on the fourth floor of Wade Martin and there's offices and classrooms and, and we do, you know, instructors do talk to one another, but the nature of the community college is a very transient one. If we have, you know, a Zoom session on, and, and try to have incentives for people to, to attend. And that's, that's also, because we are very busy. And how do we make time to have this professional development because I think that is that's a very important it's an important part of my career I think and something that teachers who you know have done this for a long time sometimes take for granted I I do it my way my way or the highway I don't want to hear about metacognition because I don't have time for that <laughs> how can we you know convince those who are you know, reluctant to uh, to engage have those that sort of engagement, and who knows what they might be able to tell you about what they're doing mm -hmm. that would be so different yes. for you yes. that might require something a change yes, uh, yes, yes. A, a new way of seeing things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love that idea of the new way of seeing things because that brings us back to English and. The whole concept of revision, which is another thing that's very difficult for our students, they think revision is editing. Well, let me fix this comma in paragraph two. And I tell them that to revise, uh, again, I'm a linguist, I love my, my word histories. I won Jeopardy because of a, because of a word history uh, uh, question. I, you know, when we look at the etymology of the word revision, it means to re-see. It's a new way of thinking, often about the text that we have written. It's not just a quick fix comma. Yeah. It requires us to rethink, to re-see, revision. And that's hard for our students. I think it's hard for our faculty sometimes. It's hard for me. I've been doing a lot of thinking um, about what is a community college because, you know, when we're part of something, we, we often cease to see it. Uh, but the community college project is a very distinctive one. Uh -huh. um, you know, it, 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 it had a very distinctive beginning yes. and it continues. So um, I'm curious, how are you thinking? What is a community college to you? What, what have you decided that that is now that you've been a part of it for so long? It's so many things. And I, I think that's both overwhelming at times, 
that we have students in our classes that are, you know, and but it's also a wonderful thing. Okay, I, I, I love the American Community College. I really do. And I've taught at a four-year university. I prefer, I've preferred my experience here as much as that experience was extremely valuable. And it helped me as a teacher. Are you willing to revise how you do things in light of hearing from your colleagues yes. in other departments? Yes, I, I'm, and I have. I, you know, have heard, you know, and now I will say, and this is one of the things with teaching, it's often trial and error. I'll try something and then that didn't really work for me. It may work for someone else. And that's another thing that I think is so great about teaching. And we all do come from different backgrounds and different things work. And I think it's great for our students to have that diversity of teaching, to think about the different ways that we learn. And like, for example, I have colleagues who do a lot with audio. I'm not really, you know, I'm, I don't really, I tried it. It doesn't work, but I'm happy. And I'm happy to have them share that information with me. So I, there are some, and that's one of the, you know, frustrating things about teaching, but it's also a teaching moment for our students to say, this really didn't work. And we're going to have moments in our lives when something's not going to work. But you always have that plan B. You always have a way to pivot. And I love learning, you know, from our faculty. And I love walking. This is what I've missed about the last year and a half, two years. I love walking down the hallway and hearing other instructors, what they're doing, what they're teaching. And I, I love that. And it, I think that's part of me that, you know, and I think those of us who teach, we teach because we love school. We loved learning. And I never want to stop learning. And so when I, you know, walk by somebody who's teaching sociology, my, um, my, the person with the office next to me is a sociology instructor, and I love talking to her. And I'll mention, as I heard you talking about this concept, let me tell you about my time in Montreal with French Canadians. And, and so I love that. And I think that's, a, that's so important. And I think it, you know, helps us to... You know, forget that we should always be learners. Teachers, of course, but we're constantly learning, and I think that's a good thing. Dynamic, again, that idea of being dynamic versus static. I feel like uh, this is a moment when you, I've really heard you speaking to your colleagues. Is there anything else that you would like to say to them or ask them in this moment since we're in this space <laughs> with this audio and this voice? Um, I, you know, I just, I love conversations. Stop by my office and we'll, we'll chat. I, uh, I, uh, and that's, but that's also something I've really missed in, you know, that, that face-to-face -face conversation with our colleagues too, because I, I do think, and, and again, it might be the nature of the community college, we are all a bit transient. You know, even those of us who, you know, we're, I'm here in my office every day to have those connections and, you know, my office doors open. And if they, you know, if they have, okay, this reading assignment's not working for me, this writing assignment, 
I have students who, you know, are struggling with source analysis and I need to have my better my students better understand what a peer reviewed journal what that is. I I heck, email's fine too. <laughs> yeah, I I love to have those conversations because I think otherwise we are in our little, you know, just we can be insular and I I think that does a disservice to to our students and to us as well, you know. We we have a big college we have all of these different programs. When you look at the guided pathways, I was like, wow, you know, I don't know much about this. What do they do in that class? It's one of the, I mean, as an English instructor, that's always just that great moment of synthesis where all of a sudden it all connects, mm-hmm. right? You know, we have the big, you know, only connect kind of moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. it really is a joy. It is. It, it is. It really is a joy, either in the classroom or with the colleague. Yeah. And I, I love, and I, that's, Another word I use a lot in the classroom, synthesis, getting students to understand what that means. And often the way we use it in English is taking multiple sources and bringing them together. And I, that's hard. And it's hard in writing, in research. It's hard sometimes in just oral conversation. But I think it is a great thing when it, when it does happen, when we do come together. And I always tell students, synthesis also, you're creating a new whole based on all of these disparate parts that come together. And that new whole is, yeah, so I love it. I love it. I think it's, I think it's great. Fellow instructional community members, Andrea has issued an invitation to connect with her and chat. The CTE is hoping to host more conversation about teaching in the future. On the webpage for this episode, you'll find a link to contact me about conversations about teaching. I hope you'll reach out if you're curious what kinds of connections are possible. Also, Andrea will be offering her lateral reading workshop to the CTE again this coming fall. Details to follow. If you've been listening to us for a while, perhaps you heard Robert Markey from the School of Healthcare in Episode 6 wishing for new insight into teaching medical terminology. And maybe, as I did when Andrea said she wished she could support someone teaching medical terminology with her background in linguistics, you thought, aha! Well, I've connected those two professors who had not known of each other before. Who knows what their conversations could lead to? Could be small optimizations of Robert's class. Could be larger ripples that innovate both of their classes. Could be a new relationship between two departments these two people will find their way, make their choices, serve their students, strengthen their communities. As I sat in the Zoom with the two instructors talking away, finding points of connection, I thought, this is it. This is instructional ecology. This is the tending to our ecology I hope the podcast would further. Are you looking for connection or support? Let me know. I'm here. Your community is right here. I hope you'll join us for the next episode, further into the year, closer to the end of this season of the podcast, and further into the web of arc.